All right, Dave. So we're on. Um, we're. It's time to talk about the colonials, the scallywags, the the troops from the colonies. Um, and I, there's a pretty good source. A reader actually sent me some of this stuff. Uh, a listener, sorry, I keep calling it a reader because I'm reading. But a listener sent me some of this stuff and said, why why didn't you talk about the colonial troops, the Indians, the Vietnamese, the Africans? And we had always planned to do it, but we had planned to do it a little later. And since we're going in somewhat chronologically, it's good to drop it in now. And then we will be setting up a lot of the interwar uprisings and Mm -hmm. anti-colonial agitations that start in the interwar period. And they actually start during the war. The fact that they start during the war. So, yeah. Yeah, we I have uh, so this it's one of these long reads uh, in The Guardian from 2017, Pankaj Mishra. Pankaj Mishra is an interesting I think we've used him on this podcast before because he wrote a book about Asian intellectuals in the 19th and early 20th century. And he writes he's a wide ranging Indian uh, intellectual um, and. He wrote this book, How Colonial Viol- I mean, this article, How Colonial Violence Came Home, The Ugly Truth of the First World War. So that's, you know, in a way, it's the main source. Uh, but there's some others that I was peeking around in a book called Underground Asia. Underground Asia is a lot about colonial police and counter and anti-colonial counterintelligence and spies and agents. So it's kind of an intriguing um, story of these agents of independence running around from from all over asia under false names and fake documents and and meeting each other but it there well, wasn't yeah also to, to me it's back. a lot like the italian nationalist yeah. movement with their secret societies right exactly and, yeah and we talked about the anarchists in, in russia and yeah it's that kind of time cloak and dagger stuff cloak and dagger exactly Pistols and and knife knifings in dark alleys and steamships and smuggling in barrels of steamships and every other okay. thing. Okay, maybe they didn't do that, but yeah, I found <laughs> it, an interesting piece by uh, Christopher Falkus on India's participation in the war. Okay. Uh, I also found I don't know if it's an MA thesis or a PhD thesis by Reed Prunty on uh, Algeria. Cool. And then I found a bunch of stuff. Uh, various places on the net, uh, some on Wikipedia, which, you know, obviously read with caution, but sometimes it can point you in a direction and you can go and find confirmation uh, mm-hmm. elsewhere. So a little bit of everything. And so the epigraph of Pankaj Mishra's article is a quote by Max Weber from September 1917. And he says, Today on the Western Front there stands a dross of African and Asiatic savages and all the world's rabble of thieves and lumpens. So Oh my gosh. <laughs> He's not You know what's you. awful? You know what's awful about that is Max Weber is not uh an can I say an unreconstructed racist? <laughs> right he's a man he's, of his time he's a man of his time and he's ahead of his time in some ways but not this one not no this not one. this one that's the disappointing thing is that you can be progressive in a number of ways uh that you can oppose german imperialism 
that you can oppose, uh, you know, the conscription of Polish laborers uh, and submarine warfare on on humanitarian grounds, and then come out with something like this. Yeesh. <laughs> so last a uh, couple of episodes ago, we talked about the way that World War One gradually i mean not all that gradually but but let's say gradually in the sense that it wasn't the plan at the beginning no became a total war and as each power started digging deeper and deeper into their societies economies for economic resources and manpower and how that transformed the societies in question and these when you're talking about britain france the united states especially Germany, Italy, to a lesser extent, of course, you're you're talking about societies that are based on colonialism. Their wealth comes from colonialism. Their labor power comes from the colonies. So, of course, when they're digging, they're going to start digging there. Um, so the British. So it came to pass that the British recruited 1.4 million uh, Indians. Uh, France recruited half a million from their African and Indochina, like Vietnam, etc. colonies. The U.S. recruited 400,000 Black Americans in Canada. Honorable mention: Canadian colonialism recruited four to four thousand between four thousand and six thousand five hundred First Nations soldiers. So, altogether, four million plus non-white men were mobilized into World War One. And Pankaj Mishra notes that in Mesopotamia, so Iraq, etc., Indian soldiers were a majority of allied manpower throughout the war. He also says that the British couldn't have taken Palestine without Indian soldiers. And Sikh soldiers even helped the Japanese evict Germans from Qingdao, the colony we've been returning to ever since we covered Chinese, uh, the scramble for China. It does come up a lot. There were 140,000 Chinese and Vietnamese contract laborers recruited mostly to dig trenches on the Western Front. And Ho Chi Minh, who I promise you we will be hearing about more on this podcast. A little. (laughs) Denounced the use of these people as he said they were being treated merely as human fodder. On the other side, some famous anti-colonial figures... Uh, Gandhi and W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, according to Pankaj Mishra, supported the aims of their white overlords, hoping to secure dignity for their compatriots in the aftermath. Now, if you go back to our episodes on the U.S. Civil War, I relied heavily on W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, and his biography of John Brown. And Du Bois has a lot of discussion about how in his view it was the recruitment of black soldiers that actually won them any measure of dignity and started to change the consciousness of America to understand them not just as slaves. And he said it's ironic that it's when you get into organized killing of other people that that's how you get respect, but such a, such is life. And he had written that before World War One, so it's clear that he had that kind of analysis in his mind when he thought uh, black people should join America in World War One. And Gandhi thought exactly the same thing. As late as July 1918, here's, here's a quotation from the Mahatma. 
seek ye first the recruiting office and everything will be added unto you. God. <laughs> right? But there are, okay, so there are three things uh, going on from the very beginning. Uh, we covered the 1914 campaigns and the the so-called race to the sea. So both sides have lost tons of troops, but the French and the British are obviously reeling. And the line is getting longer as they're digging trenches from the English Channel to Switzerland. So you need more troops and you need them today. Yet, yes, Britain is calling up volunteers, but they're untrained, not to mention unequipped. And yes, the French are obviously going to raise more troops, but again, untrained. Do we have any trained troops close at hand? And the answer is yes, we do in the colonies. So as early as 1914, you're going to take Indians and Algerians and even, you know, Senegalese troops that are stationed in the colonies and you're going to pop them into the trenches in France. Welcome to the war, boys, because we are desperate. The second thing is once you do this and once in 1915 or so, you realize, okay, it's going to be a longer war than we thought and we are going to need... uh, more of everything, equipment, ammunition, shells, and cannon fodder. We need more manpower. Call it what you will. And they're, yeah, as you say, they're going to look at the colonies as, as a source of this. But the third thing that goes on is, is really interesting. Once you call on your colonies, you know, we need, we need your help. There's a natural tendency to say, okay, we'll help, but... You know, small butt. What, what? What do I get? Yeah, what's in it for us? So Falcus says that in 1914, India was in a state of political unrest. There was growing dissatisfaction with India's status as a, a colony or or dependency, and there were increasing demands for self-government, and that aspiration was shared by moderates and extremists uh, in the National Congress. So at one point, the the Indian National Congress was described as little more than a glorified debating society for educated Indians. I I don't know how fair that is. Well, Well, the the history is, remember, we covered the 1857 mutiny, which thoroughly destroyed uh, every independence oriented person in India for a generation. So the Congress itself didn't form until 1885 or so. Right. And and when it formed, it very much was a debating society. But you can see it's now been 30 years. And it's and turning into the, the focus of nationalist agitation. Exactly. And nothing changed, right? If anything, well, no, things no. got worse. As, as usual, the British themselves created you know, most of their own problems. Yeah. Uh, there was no clear policy for India's future. There was no roadmap or anything like it. And again, as usual, some prominent British statesmen made matters worse. Uh, Lord Milner, who had done so much to bring about the Boer War, thank you very much, uh, said this in 1908. The idea of extending what is described as colonial self-government to India which seems to have a fascination for some untutored minds, 
is a hopeless absurdity. Well, that's nice. And Lord, Lord Curzon, the Viceroy, uh, agreed. Any plans for, you know, Indian self-government were, quote, fantastic and futile dreams. Right. And yet there are a couple of voices on the other side, a couple of warnings. Uh, author William Archer said, the moment Britain gets into trouble elsewhere, India, in her present temper, would burst into a flame of rebellion. Now, in the end, it didn't come to that. Uh, there were those in the Liberal government who were slightly more sympathetic to Indian hopes, or maybe just a little more tolerant, slightly. <laughs> Edwin Montague, later the Secretary of State for India, said, A new generation, a new school of thought, fostered by our education and new European learning, has grown up. And it asks... What are you going to do with us? So it makes me wonder, like, who your friend Mark Sykes would be having dinner with. Would yeah. it be with Curzon and Milner or or Mont probably Curzon and Milner? Uh, at the outbreak of war, though, the Indian reaction was spontaneous and almost unanimous in support of Britain. Offers of military and financial aid came in from all over. Uh, the semi-autonomous princes pledged their services and made massive financial donations. Uh, Nepal offered its resources. Even the Dalai Lama in Tibet offered a thousand troops. <laughs> and the Congress expressed enthusiastic support. So instead of having to station British soldiers in India to quell sedition, the British were able to practically strip the subcontinent of troops and use them elsewhere. I'd just like to say that when the Dalai Lama and Gandhi are pledging troops to the British Empire in 1914, whatever, it's clear that nonviolence is a relatively recent invention <laughs> because the proponents of it haven't even invented it yet. No. No, so. no, that's for sure. So what a what a pleasant, what a wonderful uh, surprise and relief for Britain. And it's crucial in 1914 when the British Expeditionary Force in France had been cut in half and and the uh, the vast wave of Kitchener's volunteers weren't ready yet. And, and neither were the contingents from the other dominions. The, the Canadians, the Australians, and the New Zealanders weren't ready. And the South Africans were busy putting down a, a Boer rebellion and then trying to conquer German Southwest Africa. So it, it ended up being Indian troops rushed to Europe to the Western Front. And in obviously unfamiliar and bitterly cold conditions, the Indians performed very well. So the initial response in Britain to this, you know, enthusiasm was, quote, slightly incredulous. The public was dazzled by India's response. And the Times of London wrote, the Indian Empire has overwhelmed the British nation by the completeness and unanimity of its enthusiastic aid. Wow. Wow. I'm I'm over a little overwhelmed myself, but not in the same way. No. So, Dave, uh, Pankaj Mishra says that 
between eight. He says eight million died and 21 million were wounded. But the bio of the biography of Sykes we used in our Sykes Pico episode just now said 20 million dead and 20 million wounded. So how do we square those? Uh, you simply make a statement on the nature of statistics, <clears throat> and so we don't know the we don't know the numbers to within ten million. Is that I, I've seen I've seen figures of uh, eight million uh, combatants. Combatant, okay. Dead. And maybe the maybe the flu and, is. Well, no, they're not counting the flu yet, but okay. uh, six million civilian casualties. Heavily okay. concentrated. Uh, one we'll talk about in our next episode, but uh, largely uh, German and, and Russian civilian where, casualties. Where it's mobile, mobile warfare. Well, also where the governments couldn't quite feed the army and the people at the same time. Oh, yeah, collapse, food system collapse kind of thing. But there's one thing one thing to note about it. Uh, more soldiers died in World War One than in World War Two. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, World War II was immeasurably worse for civilians, but later episodes. Um, so Pankaj reminds us that all Western powers were in the grip of racism and colonialism at this time. So it's not like there's one that's better than the others. Woodrow Wilson in 1917 said that his goal was to keep the white race strong against the yellow and preserve white civilization and its domination of the planet. So very explicit about what they want. And that's that's Woodrow Wilson of the, we'll, we'll hear more about him, the Thousand Points of Light and the League of Nations. and At this point, though, he sounds an awful lot like the Kaiser. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, there are legal prohibitions on sex between European women and black men. Pankaj points out that the opposite is not the case. No. Um, in 1915, there's a scandal when the Daily Mail prints a photo of a white nurse standing behind a wounded Indian soldier. This has become such a scandal that the army disbars Indians from leaving hospital premises without a white male companion. And they try to get white nurses out of hospitals that treat Indians. So they might have been overwhelmed. They might have been overwhelmed by the unanimity of the aid, but they didn't mean they wanted uh, Indians near any white ladies. No, but that's a knee-jerk reaction, right? Canada was more uh, proactive. So their initial stance was to reject First Nations volunteers. So a bunch of them showed up at the start of the war and said, where do I sign up? And ooh, um... Yeah. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, but no, same thing for black volunteers. Uh, we we don't want them. And the argument given in defense of this policy was that white soldiers wouldn't want to serve alongside them. Interesting. Yeah. So it took about a year and the battles of Ypres and Artois and the heavy casualty lists before that policy was uh, changed. France also in 1915 and 1916 is recruiting in Algeria to the point of provoking riots because they're using coercive tactics to recruit. So the initial there's initial rejection of volunteers in Canada. There's an overwhelmed response by how India how enthusiastic Indians are for Britain, but France actually has to basically press gang 
Algerians. Yeah. I, I wouldn't sense. use the word recruit. Yeah. <laughs> Conscript or press gang are better descriptors. Yeah. Um, so the other thing apparently Canada was afraid of was that when they recruited First Nations soldiers, they were worried that Germans might refuse to extend to them the privileges of civilized warfare. They were, but, oh, and uh, they did a funny thing, Canada did. They didn't have segregation, so they integrated the indigenous soldiers into white units, mm-hmm. which means native people saw more white people than the Indian agent, and white people saw more native people than they'd ever seen before in their lives, because Canada is segregated, but uh, the army was not. So, there are some snipers. Uh, they're they're good shooters. You mentioned this, I think, last episode or, or the episode before. But um, as hunters, native people are very good uh, shooters. So they became snipers, and there are some very famous snipers: mm-hmm. Francis Pegamagabo, Anishinaabe sniper, credited with 378 kills; Henry yeah. Norwest, a Cree sniper, credited with 100 and 15 kills, but there's a lot of resentment generated because during the war, and oh my god, there's a story from after the war that I'll yeah. tell <laughs> Yeah. But during the war, Canada actually expropriated 313,398 313, acres of reserve lands. Oh my god. So. Yeah, is legendary. Yeah. He's yeah, even in uh, high school textbooks. So there's a couple of things about that that I found interesting. Uh, You know, the idea that the Germans might not extend to them the privileges of civilized warfare, you know, the right to be attacked with poison gas and uh, subjected to incessant shelling. What they what they meant was that the Germans might execute them as uh, savages, which is partly based on on fact the Germans thought that all Canadians, or at least most Canadians, were savages. That oh, there was so a, they had a view that it was like a African colony kind of thing, where the major majority was was yeah, was yeah, German people. Well, okay, so first of all, Canadians were used as shock troops. So as soon as they moved into the line, and the Germans, you know, were able to identify who's opposite them, they'd go, okay, an attack is coming, and uh, they. There's a simultaneous respect for the fighting qualities, but there's also fear. And German troops were told, "Don't surrender to Canadians because they'll cut your ears off." Hmm. Like, like they are uncivilized savages. Another thing I find fascinating is the British thought much the same. So there's an anecdote uh, of Canadian soldiers uh, sailing. They sailed in 30 ships in 1915 and landed in Portsmouth. Uh, early in the year and as they disembarked from the ship there was a crowd of civilians to to cheer for them and welcome them and the reaction in the crowd was oh they're white <laughs> uh you were expecting what exactly? someone else yeah yeah and then the the british treatment of their own colonials is very revealing um so first back in canada uh french canadian troops were put under English officers, which goes, you know, a little bit of the way to explain part of the reason why there were fewer volunteers from the province of Quebec, proportionately speaking. Mm. Uh, And then the Canadian government set up a training camp 
at a place called Valcartier, so just a flat plain, which was uh, really poorly chosen because when it rained, the water just pooled there. So, oh, maybe it was a good thing. The soldiers got very early uh, exposure to what would be the future trench conditions, right? Mud, uh, tents filling up with uh, muddy water. Is that the the kind of exposure that helps? I don't know if it helps, but... Does walking around in muddy water help you walk around in muddy water? Or does it just rot your feet and... I I do know that the guys were angry. So they believed that the war would be over by Christmas. So they're in a hurry. Like, let's get over there before it's all done. Mm -hmm. And their training was, uh, I want to say stupid, but it was more silly, right? A a lot of learning to march in formation, uh, a lot of bayonet training, a lot of training on standing at attention and saluting. The facilities were inadequate. Uh, the latrines were particularly horrific. The food was brutal. And, you know, you've got a bunch of impatient men who are uh, volunteers and they're not used to, uh, quote, military discipline. So they arrive in Britain where the British authorities decide, oh, colonials, okay, we need to train them. Well, we got training at Valcartier. Yeah, but you need real training. So, so why the, didn't you just send us in the first place? Why did you waste all our time at Valcartier? So now they're going to waste more time in, in Britain with more stupid training. And they're going to be treated in a way that uh, really inspired resentment. You you can find a lot of Canadian testimonies that, you know, their officers treated them like... Uh, Un- uncivilized semi-savages. Now, mm-hmm. Canadians did a little bit to earn a reputation for, uh, what would you call it, indiscipline? In- Insubordination. <laughs> yeah, so there's a famous story of uh, uh, Canadians in camp being granted, like, you know, a, a, a day of leave or a night off. So they would walk into the nearest village or town and find the pub. And uh turns out, that Canadian soldiers had more money than British soldiers did. Canadians uh-huh. were Canadians were being paid a dollar a day. Many of them were surprised to find out that they were paid, but a dollar a day. British soldiers uh, received something along the lines of about 30 cents a day. So when it came to buying drinks and trying to impress you know, <laughs> females, mm-hmm. the Canadians had more money. So it gave rise to a a statement uh, about the three things that are wrong with Canadians, according to the British. The first problem was they're overpaid. And the second problem is they're oversexed. And the third problem is they're over here. They're over here. Right, right. (laughs) This will be repeated in World War II about Americans. But originally it was Canadians who got that. The Canadians also liked nothing better than a good little dust up, a brawl. So you'd have to have, you know, other soldiers set out to break up the fight. And the Canadians would go back to camp uh, bruised, a little drunk and, and quite happy. So a group of them returning to camp and the sentry on guard sees them coming in the dark and yells out a challenge. You know, halt, who goes there? Right. And, the, and, and the, the answer was, who the F wants to know? Mm. <laughs> 
and the sentry goes, oh, Canadians, okay, you can pass. <laughs> that's that's all you need to know yeah. who that was. So the uh, the other stories show that uh, Canadians did not like the uh, British style of military discipline. So they didn't show enough respect or enough deference to their officers. So just a reminder, if you're not <clears throat> familiar with this, British society was then and stayed for a long time very class conscious. So the officers were a, a, a several classes above the enlisted men. So the deference was natural. Uh, think of Sam from Lord of the Rings calling Frodo Mr. Frodo. Mm-hmm. So the Canadians didn't have that habit, and they didn't like being punished for a sloppy salute. And some of the punishments were brutal. Brutal. Field punishment number one. A man would be tied with his arms like spread in a crucifix position, tied to a, a cannon wheel and left there all day, sometimes overnight. Or they'd be made to stand at attention until they collapsed from exhaustion. Like, What is the point of that? Yeah. Uh, Australians and New Zealanders had to be retrained as well. So they sailed to Egypt to undergo more training. And I think their reaction was much the same. Like, this is really stupid. <laughs> Let's go fight, yeah. right? Yeah. But the South Africans are an interesting exception. I don't know of any such stories. Was, was it because of the Boer War and the British figured they already know how to fight? Or we're not going to try this with them because we've had to fight them in the past? So the South Africans had their own army. Uh, we, we discussed briefly their invasion of German Southwest Africa and then their uh, suppression of a, of a rebellion by other Boers. So, what, you know, why the difference? The only thing I can think of is that the British knew that they could fight and didn't want to mess with them. When I was a kid in grade school here in the 80s, <coughs> there were little songs and little things that people would little rhymes that people would have that made absolutely no sense because I think they came from a long time ago. So one of them was like this song where the guy says, gee, ma, I want to go back to Ontario. I mm -hmm. want to go. They say that in the army, the food is very fine. Da, 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 da. Have, have you heard this? Oh yeah. Is this from then? It makes sense that it would be from world war one. Yep. Yeah. There there are also tons of expressions that came out of World War One from the soldiers and crept into the language. Just mm -hmm. uh one that, that's no longer used. Uh when I when I was a kid, things would be described as lousy. Well oh, lousy yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, that's still <laughs> people still say that. Yeah, there were there were several of those in that one. It it would it didn't make sense that that would be World War Two because it's a little too whimsical almost. Mm -hmm. But going to World War One based on false promises and having it all be very different than what you thought and making a song about it makes a lot of sense. And why he wants to go back to Ontario also uh, didn't make a lot of sense until then. But that makes sense. Yeah. That kind of clicks. It kind of clicked just now when you were talking about it. So back to India. 
There's a story of one soldier, the first soldier to win the Victoria Cross from King George. Dave, I, I'm, I gather the Victoria Cross is a big deal. It's the highest military award in the British Empire. Uh, and and it, he was, it's given to you directly by the king. So. Uh, they gave out a lot of them, but perhaps. What I did find out that I did not know before was that until 1911, the Victoria Cross was reserved for uh, white men. Wow, they had to change it. Well, uh, you had some brown guys doing some pretty amazing things. So yeah, and this, uh, this one, Naik Darwan Singh, Negi, he was, uh, he he went into a trench, you know, an, an enemy trench and held it against some crazy amount of opposition for a long time and and bayonet charges and whatnot. So they gave him the Victoria Cross. And when, apparently, the story goes, according to his son, when King George gave him the medal, he said, you know, what what do you want or whatever? And, and Singh said... Uh, Naik Darwan Singh Negi said he wanted education. He wanted them to set up a school in his village, which they did. Um, and and he would tell his sons and, and his children that <clears throat> he wanted India to catch up. You know, he went over there and he saw all these things and he felt his his conclusion was that India was far behind and needed to catch up. Mm. Uh, so it was... He was a member of the Garwal Rifles from the Garwal Hills in the Himalayas. Um, this this unit was apparently founded by Lord Lansdowne. So they were in the first, uh, one of the first trench campaigns, the tr first trench raids of the campaign in France in November 1914. That's what he won the award for. Mm. But um, I saw this note in this book about India that said the majority of men under arms in the British Empire were Indian in 1914. I guess that, in a sense, the majority of people in the British Empire were Indian. So okay. It makes sense, right? Uh, so the Germans, there were so many Indians on the Western Front that during that Christmas truce, the Germans greeted all the British by saying salam because they figured that was the most uh, likely to be understood. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all these cartoons of Germans coming uh, and saying salam. Okay. So uh, yeah, so the Nar what the Garwal rifles are from the Himalayas. Maybe they maybe these are so-called Gurkhas, or maybe Gurkhas are from a different part of Nepal or something. Yeah. I guess Gar Gar the Garwal hills are in India proper, but yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about that <clears throat> that figure. Like the majority of of men under arms. I, mm -hmm. uh, a, a plurality? I I'm not sure. Falk in 1914 that, though. In 1914. Oh, oh, okay. In yeah, so that makes sense. Before yeah, before all the recruiting. Before all the volunteers and the other colonials showed up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Falkus says nearly a million Indian men joined the army, and 800,000 served on the Western Front in East mm -hmm. Africa, in the Middle East, and Mesopotamia, and 65,000 were killed. So out of total British forces of 8.9 million, mm -hmm. uh, that means the Indians are over 10% of the British Army. Yeah. yeah. There were, uh, there were. Uh, you mentioned Nepal, uh, Gurkha battalions served at uh, Neuve-Chapelle, at Luz, at Givenchy, and Ypres on the Western Front. 
as well as in Mesopotamia and Persia, Palestine, and Gallipoli. 1st Battalion 6th Gurkhas was the only unit to achieve their objectives in Gallipoli, the only ones to scale the heights. <coughs> Sorry, over 90,000 of them served in the British Army, and they suffered over 20,000 casualties. That's wow. uh, testimony That's to how they were used. They weren't they weren't guarding the supply lines. Let's put it that way. And they won uh, three Victoria Crosses, which, you know, that's how I found out that until 1911, you had to be British to win one. And we've talked an awful lot about the British, but the French did the same thing. 172,000 Algerians served in the French army. Nearly 43,000 were killed. Another source said 100,000, but I found that hard to believe. But, you know, even that, that's an incredible proportion, too. That's a quarter. Uh, And just like the Indians, there were demands for political rights for those who had served in the army. And the French, uh, quote, reluctantly and begrudgingly conceded some limited rights, even as they tried to limit the numbers who would receive these limited rights. Mm Mm-hmm. 7% of the French colonial troops were Moroccan, and the Moroccan division included some Tunisians as well. And they served in France in 1914, fought in the battles of Artois and Champagne in 1915. They fought at Verdun, which is a a horror story for a later episode. And they fought on the Aisne River in 1917. 26% of them were killed, wounded, or missing which is a slightly higher casualty rate than for French soldiers. And the Moroccans, too, were highly decorated. So just that point on on the usage, when the casualty rates are higher, that's because you keep putting them into offensives and using them as shock troops. Meanwhile, there was heavy fighting in Morocco, If you remember our episodes on the first and second Moroccan crises, France had only recently taken over and there was still quite a bit of resistance to French occupation. So colonial troops were stationed there to fight against Moroccan resistance and there were plenty of Senegalese troops there. So the tirailleurs uh, Senegalais, basically the Senegalese rifles, uh, were recruited in Senegal and throughout French West Africa. So, you know, Mali and Congo and all these other places. And they were first formed in 1857, which is pretty early, don't you think? Before the scramble or at the very beginning of the scramble. Yeah, yeah. So traditional practice was for the tirailleurs was just to have mixed units of white colonials who were known as les marsouins. And I thought, that's an odd-sounding word, M-A-R-S-O-U-I-N-S, Marsouin. So I looked it up, and it means porpoises. Hmm. So originally, Marines, part of the Navy rather than, than the Army. So the traditional practice was to take white colonials and then join them together with units of uh, West Africans. So the, these... Uh, Senegalese troops served in France, they were at Gallipoli, and they were at Salonika as well. In August of 1914, the French had 21 battalions of 
Senegalese infantry. And then when the French began to realize that the war wasn't going to be short, they raised 93 more battalions, 42 of which saw service in France. And in this very slight consideration of the fact that they were uh, African and that the weather in northern France might might be quite a shock to them. Mm. Uh, in the winter, they were withdrawn from the line and sent to Fréjus uh, in the south of France. Oh. And then, of course, once the weather got better, they were promptly shipped back to where the next offensive was going to happen. Uh, again, recruiting was often more like conscription or press ganging. Yeah. In November of 1915, there was a large French, anti-French, sorry, uprising uh, in the regions of present-day Mali and Burkina Faso. Back then, it was uh, Upper Volta. And, and the reason was really plain. It was forced recruitment of soldiers. And those are the regions that were, you know, heavily subjected to these, you know, quote, recruitment efforts. And the last resistance was only suppressed in September of 1916. And of course, in order to suppress the uprising, uh, over 100 villages were destroyed by French colonial troops. There's there's an outright war to get troops for the war. You already had a war in Morocco, right? And Mm -hmm. Like the quote about India sooner, like if you withdraw these troops, <laughs> you're going to get uprisings. And sure enough, they did. Yeah. And the uh, the tirailleurs Senegalais, uh, I mentioned they were from all over West Africa. There were also troops recruited in Madagascar. Uh, more than 40,000 soldiers and workers conscripted in Madagascar. And those soldiers went to the Senegalese tirailleurs. And you mentioned French Indochina before, um, that's Vietnam and and Cambodia. So the French had done this protectorate thing. They let the the Nguyen dynasty rule. And the Nguyens did their uh, loyal thing and press ganged thousands of uh, volunteers to send to Europe. And there were uprisings, uh, quite a few uh, in Cochin, China, and most serious in, in Tonkin. Apparently, they recruited almost 100,000 people, mostly men. One source said 93,000, very specific. Uh, Many of them in combat units, the Bataillon de Marche Indochinois, and they saw action in 1917 and 18. And I saw the photos. They're, They're wearing pretty traditional Vietnamese headgear along with their French uniforms and standing in the mud. Uh, 33,000 served in transport and medical units, and there were almost 50,000 laborers. Uh, 12,000 were killed in what they call military deaths. And Vietnam uh, also contributed money and food, which was quite, it created a hardship because the Vietnam suffered several natural disasters between 1914 and 17. And I mentioned there were many anti-French revolts during the war, uh, all of which were easily put down. Uh, But in May of 1916, the 16-year-old king, Duy Tan, escaped from his palace, planning to take part in an uprising of Vietnamese troops. 
And somehow the French found out about the plan and the leaders were arrested and executed. And the king was deposed and exiled to Réunion Island in the Indian Ocean. So the colonial administration, uh, while harshly suppressing the national movement, tried to appease uh, Vietnamese elites by introducing a few uh, reforms described as paltry reforms with promises of important post-war reforms, uh, more liberal reforms. Uh, the promises were never f- fulfilled. Just be patient. They're coming. They're coming. We swear. Yeah. Right after the war. Okay. A little later after the war, much later soon in fact the 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 simple fact that france succeeded in holding on to vietnam during the war years was mainly due to the weakness of the national movement it was still in its in infancy and it was divided right you had uh, regional differences and you had of course personality differences so the vietnamese resistance didn't get its act together And that's the only reason France could continue as a colonial power. And you mentioned Ho Chi Minh. He was in the U.S. at the time. Did you know that? Uh, I I knew that he was in the U.S. in at some point. I think I thought he spent most of his time in abroad when he was abroad in France, though, right? I know he was in France, but yeah. during the war, he seems to have spent a few years in the U.S. He learned English. He learned a great deal about the United States. Apparently, he really liked Harlem and spoke to a number of black Americans. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah, Ho Chi Minh's an amazing, amazing story. He was very active in this period. And then when you think he was alive all the way to the beginning of the... Oh, the middle of the Vietnam War with America. Yeah, yeah. That kind of continuity is probably also a big part of why they were able to accomplish what they did. But yes, that'll happen in future episodes. So another listener, no, the same listener actually sent me some passages from either a book or I think it was a book called Indian Voices of the Great War. So these are letters home and they're translated. And it's amazing because it shows you the worldview of these soldiers. And a lot of them are, they're very, um, very Indian centric, you know, they're they're and they're trying to explain sometimes but to people back home that they're writing to what's going on and why, why they're at war. And one of them writes back to his he's writing home. He's one of these same Garwal rifles in February 1915, trying to explain the causes of the war. And he says to his guru, he says, 12 kings are fighting eight on the side of the English and four for the Germans. How much can I write about the war? It would be like writing another Mahabharata. I am greatly distressed in mind. <laughs> so the Mahabharata, for people don't, who don't know, is a, like a Hindu um, epic. And it's about a you know generational war between two families. Um, and then as part of that war, the gods intervene. And, and there's all kinds of things that happen. That's actually a pretty good description. Yeah, that's not bad, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, 
so some of the consequences of this, of all this recruitment of colonial troops, because they're far reaching. And I, I think in some ways you can say that because of this, this was a major, what? This was a major impetus for the ultimate decolonization of all of these regions. And, you know, you can see the seeds being planted. So when France, uh, before we get to those, though, there's some other more immediate consequences. France, France's use of African soldiers to occupy Germany after the war was a major outrage to Germany. Uh, Germany said, you know, there was always like a gentleman's agreement to not bring non-white soldiers to Europe. So, and the Germans called it a racially shameful use of coloreds. That's the German foreign minister, who was also uh, the governor of Samoa at some point. Um, so Germany, <laughs> someone pointed out that Germany had all of German military engagements from 1871 to 1914 were outside of Europe, uh, which is interesting. I guess there wasn't too much. The gentleman's agreement makes that that makes no sense because the Germans are using African troops in the colonies in Africa. to yeah. fight against. I mean, other Africans, yes, but also to fight against, you know, white men, British and, and South African but troops. But it's like the soil, right? The kind of rate. The oh, rate, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The soil. I, I like the, the expression you, you you typed it earlier. There's race panic. Yeah, it's a race panic. <laughs> it's a race panic. So the German National Assembly in 1920, they say these savages, they declare these savages are a terrible danger to German women. Um, and Hitler says that the black soldiers in Germany are a part of the Jewish conspiracy to bring white people down. And the Nazis actually forcibly sterilized hundreds of children fathered by African soldiers. So, oh, lovely. So pretty well, I do know that perfect. in the interwar period, when the French briefly occupied the Rhineland, uh, that somewhere between 25 and 40,000 of the troops in this force were colonial soldiers. Right. And yes, the Germans did not like the sight of uh, Africans or, or North Africans, uh, you know, in, in their towns. Yeah. So th as far as the transformation of consciousness, you have Indians, uh, you have black Americans, you have native people, First Nations people, and they're seeing Europe, they're seeing different societies, they're integrate they're risking their lives many of their comrades are losing their lives and they're and they're fighting europeans i mean let's let's yeah. spell it out you're fighting they're, against white men and then you and, shoot them and they die this is adowa and the russo-japanese war scaled up no it's a personal experience yeah. I mean, we, we talked about the British defeats at Gallipoli and uh, at Kut in Mesopotamia and how that was like a shockwave resonating throughout Asia. I mean, these guys are going to come home and it's not necessarily that they talk to a thousand people. It's that their personal experience tells them I'm as good as those guys. Yeah. Exactly. So why would you not expect then to be treated yeah. like those guys? I mean, or at least... Give me something, right? Yeah, and also you've shown incredible courage on the battlefield, so it's not so it's not so easy to terrorize you into submission anymore either. Although, of course, 
wow, did they ever try? <laughs> Especially well, in the it, in the America in the U.S., right? I mean, this well, Brit- British soldiers, and I know I know from you know hundreds of testimonies, Canadian soldiers that they're going to come home after the war, and they have expectations, exactly. right? You have a job for me, right? After risking my life for the king and, and empire. Yeah. I get something, right? So why would the colonial troops be any different? Yeah. In fact, the the expectations were going on during the war. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned before how uh, thrilled Britain was by the enthusiastic Indian response. Well, yeah, there were some voices from nationalists in India that were very quick to emphasize <laughs> what they expected in return. Uh, did you did you ever come across Mrs. Annie Bazant? Oh, lots, because Annie Bazant was a mentor of uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, who was my one of my favorite authors before I kind of got into politics. And Krishnamurti was all into was all about like spirituality and yeah, she's a she's a theosophist. So this is teaching about God and the world based on mystical insight. Yeah, she's the one. She's the one who. Um, discovered him, I think, or she's one of the people who discovered him and, and decided he was the chosen one, according oh. to the Theosophical philosophy. Okay. But but there's there's more. I I was I was looking up something, some kind of correspondence. There was some kind of correspondence between her and George Bernard Shaw in one of the newspapers, and they were talking about Marxism, and and she was she's sort of she was sort of not anti-Marx, but not pro Marx and and I remember her writing something about something about something a bit dismissive of Marxism that was clear that she had read some of it so uh, it was uh, it's, it was all very interesting to see the way these intellectuals interacted with each other at this time well she's a fascinating she's described as a socialist so right. Annie Bazant socialist women's right uh, rights activist Irish home rule activist Freemason and proponent of Indian as well as Irish nationalism. And then you throw in her mysticism. Do you remember Helena Blavatsky? Of course, <laughs> we talked about of her with that, all the, you know, the, uh, the upsurge in, in seances and, uh, well, mysticism. So she's got all of those things. And on top of that, she was elected to the London School Board at the top of the poll. And this at a time when very few women could vote. So... I mean, how she ended up in India, I'm not 100% sure. But once there, she helped establish the Central Hindu School and the Hyderabad National Collegiate Board. And she seems to have cycled through religion. Sometimes she was a Christian, sometimes an atheist, and sometimes a Hindu. <laughs> yeah, now I, I, I looked it up, Dave. She, it's, a, it's a correspondence between Bernard Shaw, yes. uh, Henry Hindman, is that his name? yeah. Henry Hindman, who's a Fabian socialist, and then right. and then Annie Besant, and Annie Besant kind of comes in at the end. Uh, this is in 1887, and she comes in at the end basically to argue that Marx's theory of value is sort of unintelligible, and uh, but she lots of quotes of Marx, and she says, oh, he speaks of values, exchange value, use value, but it's not a sub. It's very it's very informed. Let's just say. Ultimately, I think she's wrong, but <laughs> but it's it's just very interesting because she she tries to she tries to engage with it before dismissing it, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah. And somehow she ended up in the Indian National Congress. And she, <laughs> and she spoke at the Congress in 1914, saying that India was no longer content to be a child in the nursery of the empire. She said, uh, India is showing the responsibility of the man in the empire. Give her the freedom of the man in India. So she launched uh, the Home Rule League. And uh, boy, boy, did she cause a lot of trouble for the British. Uh, and another Home Rule League was launched by uh, Bal Gangatar Tilak. Yeah, you know Tilak. Of course. So he's a teacher and uh, a nationalist. And the British called him the father of Indian unrest. No doubt. Now, he's a radical nationalist and yet a social conservative. That's not all that unusual, I suppose. Um, but when he joined the Congress in 1890, he found out it was too moderate for him. So in in late 1896, there was plague in India, bubonic plague, which spread from Bombay to Pune. And by January of 1897, it had reached the proportion of an epidemic. So the British Army, the British Indian Army, sorry, was brought in to deal with the emergency and they used strict measures to uh, stop the plague or at least to to limit it so they were allowed forced entry into private houses they were allowed to examine the house's occupants and evacuate them to hospitals and quarantine camps they were allowed to remove and destroy personal possessions and preventing people from entering or leaving the city. So by the end of May, the epidemic was pretty much under control. But the measures used to, to, to fight the pandemic, that, that's like martial law and beyond. And it caused widespread resentment uh, among the Indian public. So Tilak took up this issue and published some rather inflammatory articles in his uh, paper entitled uh, Kesari. Uh, Kesari was written in uh, Marathi, and then a second journal, Maratha, was written in English. So I'm not sure what Kesari means. Mm, no, me neither. But he quoted Hindu scripture to say that no blame could be attached to anyone who killed an oppressor without any thought of reward. <laughs> so, when on, so when on June uh, 22nd of 1897, two British officers were shot and killed, uh, Tilak was suspected of knowing who the perpetrators were and of concealing their identities. So he was charged with incitement to murder and sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. And when he came out of prison, wow, he... I mean, <laughs> he had a fan club waiting for him, right? He was revered as a martyr and a, a national hero. And he adopted a new slogan. Swaraj, is that? Yeah. Self-rule. Self-rule is my birthright and I shall have it. So uh, that's a pretty direct uh, challenge. challenge. Yeah. So Indian expectations had risen very rapidly and obviously much too rapidly for the British. 
uh, I mentioned before, they had no plan and, and now they had no answer. So India's excitement and enthusiasm turned to uh, uneasiness. Yeah. Indian Muslims were not particularly happy when Turkey entered the war on the side of the central powers. Uh, the, the, the word used to describe the feeling is disconcerted. No I mean, it is awkward, right? You're fighting against the caliph. Yeah. And <clears throat> and there was a uh, a projected scheme to create some kind of imperial parliament or, or some kind of imperial council. And in fact, the prime ministers of Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, I'm not sure about South Africa, probably, were uh, included in the Imperial War Council. Um, India doesn't have a prime minister, of course, so they're not going to be able to participate in this thing. And Indians now have an additional worry that their affairs might be dominated not only by the British, but by South Africans and Australians. And, I mean, you you know about South Africa's racial policies. Uh, you may not know that Australia's racist policies were no secret either. There's no non-white immigration to Australia allowed. I mean, Canada's record is no better, but Australia's was quite overt. So by 1917, India was still loyal, but tensions were rising, basically because of the British silence on the question of Indian self-government. And you had moderates trying to restrain the more extreme militants. So you had Sir Satyendra Sinha, uh, later first Baron Sinha, the first Indian to be appointed Advocate General of Bengal in 1905, and the first Indian appointed to the Viceroy's Council in 1909. Uh, moderate is perhaps not <laughs> the right description, right? Uh, Loyalist, uh, maybe? Uh, I, I, he seems to have been... His motivation seems to have been decent. I don't want to call him Uncle Tom or anything like that, but he wants the empire to work better for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he appealed for a frank and full statement of the policy of the government as regards the future of India, so that hope may come where despair holds sway and faith where doubt spreads its darkening shadow. So very poetic, but basically asking the, the Viceroy, like, what's the plan? Tell us, please. Mm -hmm. uh, in this period, the Hindu-dominated Congress signed a, a concordat, sort of friendly agreement with the Muslim League. So the oh. British achieved a great uh, thing. They brought Hindus and Muslims <laughs> Hindu -Muslim together. <laughs> Uh, so and, much work to got went into dividing them, and then they just messed it all up. Yeah, they united them pretty quickly, and and uh, the, even some of the uh, the hereditary princes. I mean, they know what side their bread is is buttered on. But even the the, the Maharaja of Bikaner uh, approved of the legitimate aspirations of our brother Indians, and. Annie Bazant just kept up her agitation to the point where the British lost their patience and, and had her arrested and interned, which, <laughs> which was foolish. 
just yeah. stupid because there were immediately demonstrations against this and the situation threatened to turn ugly. This is when uh, Edwin Montague took over the India office. He took over from Austin Chamberlain, who was the son of Joe Chamberlain and the half-brother of Neville Chamberlain, future prime minister. So Montague on August 20th made a very important pronouncement in Parliament. The government's aim, he said, this is Parliament in London, by the way, uh, the government's aim was the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire. What does that mean? (laughs) It's still pretty murky, right? It means be patient. Well, it's certainly not clear. Progressive could mean be patient. Over the next 400 years, yeah. Yeah. Responsible government as an integral part of the British Empire means uh, you're not going anywhere. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So while India's enthusiasm for the war had largely evaporated, there were still quite a few who were optimistic and they opposed uh, the activities of uh, Mrs. Bazant and guys like Tilak. Now, many of the soldiers, you know, they're going to be coming home having fought in a common cause. It, it, it's it's not hard to understand that they're going to believe that they're entitled to a greater status, that India is entitled entitled to a greater status within the empire. Exactly. So raised expectations that are then really bitterly disappointed so we'll we'll come back to all of these interwar but in canada there's something called the soldier settlement act to give veterans of the war uh, land to help them start their new agricultural lives and whose land do they give they confiscate 85,000 acres from reserves to give to white soldiers so nice can't can't slap can't be more of a slap in the face for native people than that right um so the league of indians of canada is formed in 1919 by some of these veterans in india there's this huge massacre in 1919 at jalyan Bagh. we will certainly talk about that in a lot of detail and after the war uh, in U.S., there's all these assertions of autonomy and confidence by black people, and that's when we get to race riots of the 1920s where lit white mobs basically burn black communities to the ground. Uh, Tulsa is the most famous one, but there's lots of others. And there's um, a really, really dark period of lynching, right, in this interwar yeah. period for the next few decades, and, and it has to do with with these veterans coming back and expecting something better and then having to destroy these expectations to reimpose racial rule on them. So all of that is coming in interwar, but all of the point of this whole episode is to show how it all started with the recruitment of these troops by necessity in the war because the other people were doing it, so they did it. and. That's how we get these big changes to the world order. Mm-hmm. Very big changes. So 
you want to just you want I, it seems like you made a note here that you wanted to point out that there are oh some i mentioned it i mentioned it earlier here. and and you said it with you know assertions of autonomy and and confidence so you know despite the fact that your country was occupied and and dominated by these imperial powers you you've now had a, a sort of an awakening a realization that you know on a battlefield yeah uh yeah. we're all yeah i mean i remember that that amazing quote from 1857 which probably had come from even earlier but i remember 1857 there was some kind of poster or something where the 1857 mutiny mutineers said you have the same two hands as your enemy you know yeah and that's that's the thing so okay uh we are going to go back to europe but i want one more stop out here in the east um we're going to talk about the armenian genocide uh of 1915 uh, before we go back to europe 